Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we currently investigating Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host Frederick, and this is part two of the Ancient Apocalypse saga. And this time we will look into more of the monuments and different locations that Graham Hancock bring up in his Netflix series. Last time we focused more on his background, origin and influences. But this time we will get more into the archaeological remains or places and sites that he brings up throughout the series. And this time we will focus on three locations. It is Gonang Padang, the Pyramid of Kochula and the temples on Malta. And a couple of other of different things too. We are also joined by Dr. Bill Farley, who has been guested us in the past, and also Kaylee from History with Kaylee. I also want to thank Majora Zed from Twitter, who shared their research on Kuchula Pyramid and some myth about the site and their research, which helped me <laughs> quite a lot in here. And remember that you find sources, resources and further reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find my contact info if you spot any mistakes or have any suggestions. And you also find a fully referenced transcript there for this episode and basically all the others too we have done in the past. And if you like the podcast or this video, you should like, subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you listen on podcast. Even if you don't listen on podcast, just go to any podcast player, give us five star. That helps tremendously in the algorithms. Now, when we're finished with our preparations, let's dig into the episode. Now let's start where Hancock started the show, with Gunam Padang. And this site is located in West Java, and that's some three and a half hours from the central city of Jakarta. Hancock claims that this site is a mystery that has to be solved. A puzzle indeed we have, but um, not for the reasons Graham Hancock might have intended. Now there's a rich tradition of legends in the Malay archipelago, as in many other cases around the globe, of course, there are legends about this site's particular, Gunam Padang. For example, the Sudanese people tell stories about King Silvangi, who tried to build a palace there during one night. And while Hancock usually sees things from a mythical lens, we don't see it that much in this episode. Or do we? His primary theory in this section is that there once was a vast and powerful civilization before the Deluge in Sundaland. Now, did he come up with this theory by himself? Well, as we learned in the first part, Hancock have been heavily inspired by theosophic writings. So is it a big surprise that the theosophist C.W. Leadbeater wrote in his book The Occult History of Java? that the Java once was part of an Atlantean colony that was attached to the Asian mainland. And just because an idea is presented in an esoteric book, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. So let's see what Hancock has to claim about the site and what his evidence really is. There are three claims in the show that we will look into here, that the Gunung Padang is a pyramid, 
that it's human-made and C14 dating show that the site's construction could be as old as 9000 BCE or maybe even 20,000 BCE. Let's start with the first idea that Gunung Padang is a human-made pyramid. And since it was rediscovered in 1979, excavation has taken place basically ever since. A couple of hypotheses has been tested, and since uh, no grave has been discovered within the complex, it's usually agreed today that this site is a Punden Barundak. This would make sense since this type of structure is found across the West Java. Punden Berundak is a megalithic structure whose name translates to basically glorified person. And these structures are similar to a step pyramid in the sense that they are pyramid formed and have different platforms going up. But they are used as a part of an ancestral worship. And this tradition was most active with the megalithic sites during the Pilo-Metallic era and sometimes referred to the Indo-Malayan Bronze Age. This period is usually said to be around 500 BCE to 500 AD. So Gunung Padang is one of many structures with this shape within the area. But the largest due to the incorporation of the 885 meter tall natural hill. You also have Lebak Sedung, Arka Dumas, Bukit Kasur, and many more megalithic structures in the same type of tradition. We also see connection in later Samoan tradition of mound building that takes place around 1100 CE. And before we go any further, I want to make something clear here, and you will understand this a bit more as we go on through the episode. The Pundun Berundak theory is entangled with a sort of regional naturalism or a sense of regional superiority. Now, the manufactured part is on top of the hill. We find five enclosures where archaeologists would agree that we see artificial structures. But the rest of the hill is a natural phenomenon. Since the, it's a base of a volcano, the columnar joints we see throughout the episode would not have needed to be brought in. Hancock makes a point that columnar joints are normally vertical. While there are many examples where columnar joints are vertical, Look, for example, at the Devil's Causeway. You will notice that quite clear there. But there's, of course, other examples where they are not vertical. And the cracks that create the columns appear where the lava flow cool. And we see this, for example, in the re supposed retainer wall that he presents in the show. And what Hancock and Dr. Hillman refer to as mortar is, according to volcanologists, traces of natural weathering and that the site is based on a volcano would explain the cave Dr. Hillman claims are in the center of the hill and from all the evidence we have it looks to be a natural lava tunnel. So we can partially agree with Hancock here that the site is artificial but it's not a pyramid and has never been intended to be a pyramid in that sense. And the construction used the local available stones on the hill to construct this Punden Berundak so that we don't know the function or refuse to accept its manufacture is a rather strange claim from Hancock to be honest but note that this hill is an ancient volcano again and the stones we see here are found within the neck of the volcanoes and that the site is part of here and now for the dating of the site and of course 
things take a bit of a darker turn here. Much of the episode is spent with the geologist Dr. Danny Hillman Natavidjaya. He was, together with lead archaeologist Ali Akbar, responsible for an excavation that took place between 2011 and 2014. Both appear throughout the episode as experts on the site, but um, this excavation has not been without uh, its fair share or, of criticism. And to understand the C14 datings and the context they were taken within, we need to look closely at how they excavated the site. I first want to pause and reflect, and uh, we should take notice that archaeology can and often are used for political gain. Indonesia is a post-colonial state. While the first president, Suikarna, was trying to build a nation based on economic freedom from the West, empire from the pre-colonial past was used to strengthen the legacy of his regime. That archaeological claims has been used to support nationalistic ideas is far from new. Neither is sponsoring a pseudo-archaeological claim to boost your national image. We saw this, for example, in Bosnia with the Semir Osmanajit's uh, pyramid in Vishoko. And we have another connection. We see how funds from the state is uh, used to support one of these French ideas, both in Bosnia and both here in Indonesia. So the research team at the Gunung Padang received 3 billion rupiah in uh, initial funding. Now, it sounds like a lot, it's not too much when we convert this to US dollar, but compare this 3 billion to the 4.6 billion rupa Bandung Archaeological Center get to cover their research and salary for a whole year. And this is supposed to, well, include the salaries, uh, projects, excavations, conservation, and everything else. And uh, the research team at Ganong Padang uh, got 3 billion for the first year, basically. And there's no secret that the excavation of Gunung Padang was ordered by the then-sitting president Sisulu Bambang uh, Yudhoyno. As Silvestovati and Favro, the Yudhoyno administration utilized symbols and landmarks to try to bolster a national identity. Yudhoyno wanted a symbol that could be used and considered to be older and bigger than other famous monuments like the Pyramids of Giza. And we see different nationalistic activities take place throughout excavations. They have flag risings, they have salutes, they have high-ranking official. They even named part of the excavation Operation to Honor Red and White. Now, but even if an excavation has a political agenda, they could still theoretically do good research. So is it the case here? And the more we look at it, the more it becomes clear that this was not the case, unfortunately. They went for a rather destructive excavation with a lack of general oversight and methodology. Samples were taken and analyzed without motivating their relevance or context even. And there's cases of recent items or more modern items uh, contaminating the excavation. For example, a coin that turned out to be from the mid-1900s was dated by the excavation team to be from a layer or within a layer that they had dated to 5200 BC. And the find was not even in situ in the first place. 
and there was never any good reason for placing the item in that layer even. And they didn't even talk to other archaeologists to see if their theory was correct or even numismatics, people who study coins, but decided that this was an ancient amulet and evidence of this ancient culture that they were trying to find on the site. And there's more reports of items not found in situ, but would rather just appear among the excavation teams. And this isn't really too surprising if you have in mind that they had up to 500 volunteers. None of them really had the experience with archaeology or is unknown their level of experience. As for the C14 dating, we have a similar pattern of mistakes. There are, for example, two core drillings, but we're only sure where Dr. Hillman have taken one of these, creating a bit of a context issue here for us. And the dates look strange when we look at these two, for example, we see old date that's mixed with the younger dates within the core. And the 2000 BC or 20,000 BCE that's date that's thrown around within the show is from drill core number two at a depth of seven meters. And we get then later a calibrated date on 11,600 BCE at only 8 meters. And this sequence in the core closes out on yet another 20,000 BCE date. Now, I like to note that uh, these extreme dates are sometimes within the core just separated by a couple of centimeters. While it's plausible, it's um, highly peculiar to say the least. It's not really something we would expect to see, especially with these long time ranges within the core. Hillman isn't really noting this in any documentation that we have access from within his uh, archaeological digs. And um, as we previously mentioned in another episode, core drillings are sensitive to contaminations. Furthermore, the researchers doesn't seem to know what they are testing. Context is everything within archaeology. We need to know what we're testing and within what context. But the team is just noting that this is organic matter that they have, for some reason, the side is from the construction of the site within, without giving us any you know, deeper explanation for it. But since Hillman and Ali Akbar's team has rounded the quality control that is peer review, the data we have is quite scarce from the excavation, unfortunately, and they have systematically only speaking with media outlets like the news or papers, blogs, you know, the popular media, so to say, instead of publishing it to journals. Add to this a lack of attention to stratigraphy and insufficient documentation when removing columnar joints and general site destruction we we have parts of the site that now have been rendered rather useless for future scientists and this is an excellent example of what happens when you're doing an excavation for the wrong reasons dr hillman went to the site to find his indonesian atlantis and the regime paid Hillman to find a nationalistic monument that would rival the pyramids of Giza. 
And it becomes pretty evident, read Hillman's book, Plato Never Lied, Atlantis in Indonesia from 2013, that he was out to prove his idea all along, no matter the cost, basically. And evidence that might disprove his hypothesis has been left out or explained away. So I find it almost a little bit unseemly when Hancock uses this date without context to prove his hypothesis. <laughs> in the episode, they never mentioned the excavations or the obscene amount of money they got to create them. Instead, he go for this idea that the discovery is getting silenced when they don't really share their discoveries with the other. But this approach, of course, fits Hancock quite well because he can then claim that archaeologists refuse to look at evidence even though the evidence wasn't really shared with us from the start. And before we go to the next part, I want to welcome back our next guest. So I want to welcome Dr. Bill Farley, who has been a guest previously. Uh, welcome back. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Uh, I was on the show previously when we were just making fun of a, a, a an episode of, <laughs> uh, of Ancient Aliens. Uh, it'll be fun to talk about some different stuff today. So I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me. So you're an American archaeologist. So you're part of the conspiracy, mm. according to Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so I guess we get a bit nuanced part here, but um, since you were watching Ancient Aliens with us before, would you maybe want to share some differences you noticed between Ancient Apocalypse and Ancient Aliens? Yeah, I, I it's there's some interesting similarities and differences. I think I think you know I'm sure as you've noticed, you know there are a lot of similarities. It, it borrows a lot of the same visual language. Which is to say, just sort of basic documentary style, um, which which I think is meant to lend it credibility uh, in the same way. But I think a big distinction, an important distinction between the two, is that Ancient Aliens is more um, overt in its in its uh, uh, reaching out to, let's say, conspiracy theorists. Right? It knows what it is, and it's not pretending really to, at least. It's not pretending in overt ways. It subtly pretends to be something it's not with its use of visual language hmm. and filmic language to try and, and the way it uses the, the, the language of documentarians to, um, to lend itself credibility. But uh, I think Ancient Apocalypse, maybe because it's on Netflix, maybe because of Hancock and his, uh, his particular approach to this that goes back decades in his writings, much more... Uh, tries to play a a careful game with how it presents uh, its 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 evidence, its things that are not backed. I'll say things that are not backed up by evidence. Right, Hancock will sort of quite cagely say, you know, he'll use um, uh, he'll use real archaeological sites and he'll often give lots of real context for them, um, which Ancient Aliens does a little bit, but Ancient Aliens usually is very quick to abandon whatever archaeologists say and go straight into, <laughs> but what if there was an intergalactic alien war? And that's the reason why this is referencing back to the episode of the show that I was on, right? <laughs> where we were talking about, you know, people hiding underground tunnels, exactly, which is a site that Hancock talks about in his, in, in the documentary too, uh, which I thought was a neat little fun connection. Uh, but Hancock will spend much more time talking about the archaeology. He brings on guests who are ostensibly archaeologists, who it's trickier to um, put into the territory of crackpot. Uh, he's, I think it's just a smarter show. It's designed for a more modern audience and it's designed to draw people in who 
Mm. uh, maybe don't have a lot of experience with archaeology because a lot of it's, and I've seen this so much in comments on my YouTube videos and on Twitter and everywhere where all this discourse is happening. People will say again and again, you know, I don't know, this, this stuff doesn't sound so crazy to me. It sounds perfectly legible. And you have to have kind of a a pretty decent archaeological knowledge before you can start to pull apart some of his cases. And ancient aliens, I think, is much less so, right? It's easier to look at that and go, this is ridiculous, right? It's it's it's, it's much easier. So it makes our job easier a little bit um, sometimes. Yeah, but the difference between uh, ancient aliens and ancient apocalypse is, well, they're not trying to sell it to a new audience. They want the conspiracy, the David Icke's, the alien crowd who already believe in it, while... Ancient Apocalypse more put itself as I'm just asking questions mm-hmm. and this is a science show. Well, Hancock maybe don't want to be a scientist, a historian or archaeologist, but he wants to present himself as presenting a scientific idea, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so to say. Yeah, it's, it's like the audience. Ancient Aliens, I think, is is looking to speak to insiders who are already alien people who are already conspiracy theorists, people who are just into that stuff, whether seriously or not, right? Like sometimes people just watch that stuff for fun. And I get that, right? That's, that's, that's okay. People just watch that stuff the same way they might watch X-Files and they know that it's yeah. all BS and they're just having a good time with it. And I think maybe the thing about ancient apocalypse, that's a tiny bit more insidious is, is exactly what you just said. Like they're reaching for an audience who don't realize what they're watching is, uh, you know what it is they, they think it's something different and uh and that's a little bit that's a little bit uh, alarming i think yeah and he's using quite clever method for example he always claimed that he is hated that we're trying to suppress him closing down because he's on to the truth of uh, everything and you know scientists was always trying to keep a status quo for example he brings up uh, clovis uh, quite a lot would you want to speak a little bit to the people who might not be familiar with the Clovis? Yeah, he 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 brings up this issue of Clovis and Clo- the quote-unquote Clovis first theory. And he doesn't give us a ton of background on that. And it, it, it's in, the context for this is really deep. And, it, and it, it's, um, it's something you learn in school if you're going to school for archaeology in the United States, because it's an important part of the history of archaeology. But it's hmm. a kind of a... a, a it's it's a it really is that it's a part of the history of archaeology. Why should we care about this? Well, Hancock has made this a centerpiece of his argument because a huge part of the show, and I would say this is a difference from ancient aliens too, is like you were saying, there's a kind of a victim complex element, and I, I think that's an intentional structuring of the show. Like, oh, I'm 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 against the establishment, and he has to paint archaeologists that somehow this cabal of secret uh like uh secret secret keepers and and or at at the worst intentional secret keepers and at the best uh just really really um doctrinarian and uh, old-fashioned and like stick in the mud unable to change and so to that end he brings up a couple of different elements, uh, things that have a little kernel of truth. And one of those is this Clovis first theory. And the, the, the Clovis first theory is, as its name suggests, it's a theory about the peopling of the Americas. So it's a, uh, hmm. it was a theory that was the leading theory in archaeology for some number of decades, the middle of the 20th century, uh, about how humans first came to North and South America. So the, 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 the very distant ancestors of Native Americans where did they come from and how did they 
how did they get here to, to these continents? Because, you know, there's these big oceans separating them. And, uh, and the archaeological evidence suggested that that happened a long time ago, uh, but relatively recent compared to, say, somewhere like Africa or, or, or Southwest Asia or, or much of Asia, right? Uh, and so uh, the theory was, the Clovis first theory argues is, it's the one everybody's heard of, right? That during the last ice age, the Bering Land Bridge was exposed because of lower sea levels. People came across the Bering Land Bridge down through the ice-free corridor, which was this space that was opening between the two ice sheets covering what's now Canada, uh, and then uh, and then sort of highwayed down into North America and South America. And it's a very elegant theory. That's the word I always use for it in class. It's, it, it's nice because everything happens at just the right moment. There's all these climactic yeah. shifts, and at just the right moment, we've got the Beringia is still exposed. The ice-free corridor is opening. Clovis sites these sites that have this very distinctive material culture, including the really famous Clovis point, these big, long lancelet points with a big flute up the center, uh, start to appear all over North America right around 12 and a half thousand years ago. Uh, so all of this sort of works. It seems to, seems to, uh, it seems to, 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 to just work just right. Except then the, the, some sites started to emerge. Archaeological sites started to be explored. And uh, hmm. uh, in, in the 80s and the 90s, particularly, uh, uh, sites like uh, Mesa Verde and Paisley Caves, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, and a few others all over North America and South America uh, that, may, that sort of started poking holes in this theory, because mostly just because the sites were too old. They were 13,500, 14,000 years old. They were just yeah. too old. They didn't make sense. Uh, and there was a huge debate in archaeology at that time about whether those sites were real. They needed to have uh, extraordinary evidence, which was, which I think was reasonable because you were undoing many decades of archaeological uh, hypothesis to do that. And there was an intense debate. And some old archaeologists were really unwilling to change their ideas about this. But over time, those sites have been tested more and more and more and more sites hmm. have been founded and even older sites have been founded. Uh, and archaeologists also started to do things like listen to indigenous people more often. And indigenous people were saying, we think that our ancestors have been here longer. And all of these things together really led to a paradigm shift, a big flip over in which the Clovis first hypothesis is no longer the dominant theory in archaeology. And it hasn't been for probably around 25 years, uh, about a quarter century. Um, are there still Clovis first holdouts? Absolutely. Of course there are. That's science. Yeah. There's always going to be, there's always <laughs> going to be difference of opinion on this. Uh, I, I, but, but the majority of archaeologists nowadays do accept that the Clovis first theory is not adequate for explaining the earliest peopling of the Western hemisphere. Uh, so, so bringing that back to Hancock, and hopefully I'm not being too long-winded here. It is a little bit of a complicated <laughs> idea to explain. Bringing that back to Hancock, he wants his viewers to believe that archaeologists still believe in Clovis first and are unwilling to change mm. their minds because it's – or at least to – point to this time when there was a great debate about this and say, that's how archaeologists are. They never change their minds. They're never willing to accept new information. Look at how they treated Jim Adavazio and the folks excavating Monteverde. I mean, excuse me, um, um, uh, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, uh, right? Look at, and, 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 you know, is there a kernel of truth in that? Was a guy like Jim Adavazio mistreated badly and that site was a, a, given an extraordinary level of scrutiny? Probably. But first of all, it was a quarter century ago. And second of all, ultimately, I think in many ways, Clovis first is a case study for why Hancock is wrong about this, because when the evidence mm. continued to build, archaeologists did change their mind. And today, 
the majority position has totally shifted. And most archaeologists do believe in a pre-Clovis occupation of North and South America. So it's, uh, I just don't think it holds water. So he's, he's, uh, he's creating a straw man there, right? And, and yeah. it's a straw man with a kernel of truth, not to mix <laughs> several metaphors wildly. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a straw man with a kernel of truth at the heart of it. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's my thoughts on that. But uh, others maybe would disagree with me, but I think that's what's going on there. If you start to look at people disagreeing, you will find it in all places of life. And even among archaeologists, for example, What's his name? Uh, Thompson, uh, Eric Thompson, who mm -hmm. was quite vocal against how we interpreted Maya script before it broke in the 70s there mm -hmm. somewhere. So there's been these people trying to hold back, but they've always failed when all, all the reports started starting to come in because that's how science works. We correct mm -hmm. it when we get better information. So he's somewhat telling a half a story and then want to sell you that oh look how they never change as you mentioned here and he also have had a bit of a false tactic in how he approaching criticism he refused it <laughs> most of the times but some of his followers have uh, uh, done a bit of a grassroots movement that you've seen a bit of the rougher end of especially with ratemyprofessor.com for example would you Want to share your experience with the website and yeah, this this whole thing got quite nasty. And and how much of this lays on Graham's shoulders, I think, is hard to say. Um, but uh, those of us who have been critical of the show, and I think people have really been pretty mild mannered about this. I mean, what did I do? I made a couple of YouTube videos that sort of <laughs> talked about it and just tried to give some context in which I talked about things like Clovis. And those YouTube videos got some traction. They got a lot of views. Um, and, uh, and that, that, uh, that, that put me in the crosshairs of a couple of people. Um, probably most obviously is a very large YouTuber, um, who goes by bright insights guy named uh, uh jimmy corsetti uh who, who is who's regular on uh on joe rogan he's a buddy of of grams uh but he's he's uh yeah he 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 likes to get down in the mud a bit more than some of these other guys graham has this very like mm. i i i don't i don't do these sorts of things and like i'm going to have long debates about who i will debate with on the joe rogan show and uh, <laughs> uh and 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 he sort of tries to stay above this but jimmy's more a down in the mud sort of a guy uh, and, uh, and we had some sort of an exchange on Twitter and then he blocked me, uh, and, uh, whatever. I thought that was the end of it. Okay. Whatever. You interact with the person, somebody blocks you. I, I, I never will knock somebody. Somebody wants to block me. That is their right. Yeah. I block people <laughs> when, when I don't want to talk to them anymore. I, I don't care. Uh, but he, he then went and, um, um, we all have, uh, this was not hard to screen cap. He went on Twitter. And so this guy, just to give you a little context, this guy has like one and a half million YouTube subscribers. He has a very large following. And he went on and he sort of went to his followers and he said, Hey, I think, you know, we, we should get dirty with these guys. And he was talking, wasn't talking about me specifically. He was sort of saying all of this whole group of people who were criticizing him and Hancock and others. Uh, and he and he had specific suggestions. You should go and uh, write fake reviews about their books. You should write fake rate my professor reviews. You should uh, call up their HR and pretend to be a student and, and make stuff up about them, try and get them fired from their jobs. Pretty nasty stuff, and uh, hmm. just about all the I, I had about just about all those things happened to me. Most publicly uh, was I, my rate my professor review uh, reviews were 
review bombed. It's, it's relatively <laughs> low stakes here, but I got something like 15 or 20 very fake rate my professor reviews, one star rate my professor reviews, uh, with really nasty stuff in them, hilariously fake, <laughs> writing things that no student would ever write um, about classes I don't even teach anymore, and just, uh, you know, obviously factually incorrect stuff. Uh, and uh, rate my professor. Took some of them down, but have left about a half dozen of them up, which has ruined my rate, my professor page and my, my scores and refuses to take them down or even reply to me. They, they don't even like, uh, they won't reply to my, uh, messages and my request to talk to them or give them evidence of what happened. Uh, so that remains there. Uh, so this is the, this is the, uh, the stuff you got to deal with, I guess, if you want to, uh, if you want to criticize stuff on the internet. I think if you take a look at the criticisms I've had, they've been pretty fair and pretty mild, uh, but uh, they, they, they certainly pissed off some people. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's been my, <laughs> that was an, that was an annoying couple of days where I was on the phone with my university HR and the university police department and, and yeah. having to talk to them about all this stuff. It was, it was, it was stressful. It was stressful, but yeah, it is what it is. It's no, it's no big deal. Understandable. Like, but the university can't help with ratemyprofessor.com or they can't just... with that. I mean, I was the, the university was great and and I spoke to my dean and all those people and like they, they were like, listen, if we're gonna get fake calls from people, like that's not gonna affect you. We know what's going to first of all, this stuff happens. This is not unusual for academics, actually. Uh and hmm. some academics work in much more contentious fields than than we do. <laughs> right. And they get a lot of this, you know, this kind of and 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 also of course uh my colleagues who are women or people of color get get orders of magnitude more of this crap than hmm. I than I do. Uh so I'm getting a taste of it for sure. And it's and it and it's it's unpleasant. It makes me more empathetic. Uh but they, you know, they're like, we we we've we've this is not our first rodeo, so to speak. Uh and they <laughs> and they they knew what was going on. But Ray My Professor is just some website. It's just some business, you know, or whatever. And uh and it seems to be running kind of on autopilot at this point. It seems to be they're just letting algorithms do everything. And I don't know. I don't think there's any actual humans there answering the messages anymore. <laughs> Is my, is no, my, I think it's from when I looked into the site, it looks abandoned. It's don't really have a parent company, really. Nobody seems to care. It as long as it's running and give them some ad revenue, they seems just seems to perfectly be perfectly like happy. Most of their help pages are just broken web links, you know. So you, yeah. you're trying to find who can I send an email to so that I can have a conversation and explain what happened and it's just you can't do it there's no way to do it so i no, was like you know, adding them on twitter and sending them instagram <laughs> messages which they completely ignored uh, <laughs> you know it's, so it is what it is i don't know i don't think so. you know the warning signs on a website that you can't contact anyone uh, not really give them a lot of credibility at the end of the day <laughs> i don't think so and i don't get the impressions that students value it that much there was a time maybe five ten years ago when it was an important tool and uh and i just don't know i just don't know if it is anymore i don't think many students use it anymore so sorry right my professor they probably would if you you know treated yourself well with a little more respect <laughs> that's just me <laughs> so what rating would you give ancient apocalypse <laughs> you know uh it depends on how i'm gonna give you a, i'm gonna give you a real weaselly answer it depends on on on, on uh who's rating it in some ways, I think it transcends ancient aliens a lot in its um, in its reaching for legitimacy and credibility. The getting on Netflix, and of course, you know, we all know the, you know, I don't know. There's some questions about how we got it on Netflix, right? He's got a he's got some familial connection, shall we say? I don't yeah. know. I have no idea if those 
were utilized, maybe not. I don't want to, but you know, it's it raises some questions, uh, right? But he was he's it, the show was on this really mainstream platform. It's hmm. a higher production value, I think, than anything that Ancient Aliens has ever done. Uh, it's it's smarter about how it presents its arguments to make them seem more reasonable uh, and to reach out to a broader audience of people who uh, maybe aren't already quite invested in these alternative <laughs> hypotheses, shall we say? Uh, um, but uh, so you could you could see that as a well, that's that's really an improvement. They really did a good job. Or you could say, wow, that's extra manipulative and gross <laughs> and, and rated even lower. <laughs> uh, so it depends on your perspective, I guess. Uh, the show is certainly very slick in how it was made and how it was produced, how it was advertised and how it was, mm. uh, how it was put out there. But in, in, uh, in other ways, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really disingenuous and, uh, and it uses, it does a lot of things falsely that it knows it's being false about and it does it anyway. So uh, that I don't care for very much. So... Thank you for your time. I will let you get back to your work. You're starting your day. <laughs> yes, yeah, but, off, to, uh, off to everything. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. It was <laughs> very appreciated. <laughs> yes, thank you for having me back. Uh, any any time you want to chat more, I'm around. Thanks again to Dr. Farley. And you should go back and listen to his previous appearance back in episode 12. Links to his YouTube channel and all the other good stuff can be found in the show notes. So let's get back into the program. Hancock brings us across the globe to a place famous for its hot sauce and having the largest pyramid on earth. Welcome to Cochula, located in Puebla, Mexico. This might not be the tallest pyramid in the world, measuring only some 25 meters or 82 feet in height, but by volume, it's the grandest of them all. The size measure 315 times 300 meters or 1033 times 984 feet and were built around the late pre-classic Mayan period, almost simultaneous as Teotihuacan. We can see the influences of this larger city on the Cochula pyramid in its earlier stages. They use, for example, the architectural style uh, talud tablero, meaning that they have uh, part of the wall sloping, then followed by a straight section. Now, Hancock Visits uh, brings us some excellent film of the locations and the tunnels within the Cochula Pyramid. Sure, one could uh, discuss the Azteca and Concheros dancers' clothes. We will glance over that part. Uh, for now, this is a topic that we might revisit one day, but not today. Now, Hancock's dating for the site isn't really too strange, to be honest. He says it's to 500 BCE. While it's a little bit off and he doesn't really give any reason for the date, it's not way off actually. Usually the pyramid is dated to between 400 BCE and 200 BCE, but the 200 BCE date is more likely since it's based on ceramics found at the site that we can date. And Graham spends most of the time just walking around the tunnels beneath the pyramid and they bring up a small spring. Hancock claims it's beneath the Cochula Pyramid, but in reality it's more to the west side of it. And this is a natural spring that feeds into a marshy area that's just a little bit regress 
beside the pyramid. And if you have been with us sometimes or well read on my uh, mythology, you might recognize this scene a little bit from the Craven myth. We have what could be described as a ball core from where the mice god uh, sprung. And water is an essential part of the Maya rituals, as we discussed in an earlier episode. So it's not strange that they build a temple so close to a water source, a spring. Uh, and we should note that Hancock wishes that the pyramids have something more in common than just the shape. Hankel says, the problem is that these structures are universally associated with very specific spiritual ideas. What happened to us after death? Now in Graham Hancock's minds, all the pyramids of the world have a common idea that brings them together. Death and the afterlife. And since they all share this idea, it's impossible that these structures developed independently by the different people living in the regions. But there's an issue, of course, with Hancock's reasoning. The pyramids aren't all connected to death or the afterlife. Sure, the Egyptian pyramids were about death and many other of the pyramidal buildings are connected to the religion or different ceremonies. And sure, religion tend to claim to have answers to what happens when we die or after we die maybe more. But that's as close as we get to this idea of this pyramid symbols, uh, death and afterlife. For example, the pyramids in Mesoamerica were more connected to life. The Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan commemorates the creation story, for example. And the sacrifice and taking place on the pyramids throughout Mesoamerica was to ensure the continuation of life and to celebrate life. And the mounds of North America were filling several different functions, ranging from ceremonial locations for longhouses, meeting places, etc., it's not correct to attribute them to only what happens when we die or an afterlife. We have the temples in India and Cambodia that have religious connection, but not really connected to either death or the afterlife. Sure, they're part of the religion where those questions are answers, but these buildings themselves aren't connected to that part of the religion. Then we have the pyramids in China that we again see are used as tombs. So there we have the death. But um, what Hancock uh, does here is cherry pick the data so it fits his narrative. Leaving out the misses and only focusing on the hits. The same thing that he accuses archaeologists of doing. Isn't that a little bit funny? Isn't it? But let's move into Hancock's favorite pastime. Looking at myth from an esoteric lens. You see, there is a legend that giants built the Pyramid of Cochula after seven of them survived a great deluge. And the first and only account of this story is written in a book called Ophilothria, published in 1899. In it, the anonymous author retells a report from a nameless Dominican priest who visited Cochula in 1566. And the story shows signs of Christian influence, something not really uncommon when... They, in the past, retold the pagan myth. For example, Snorre Sturluson's poetic Edda does the same with the Nordic pagan myth. We must remember that objectively writing down scholarly material wasn't or was, is a relative fresh idea in a sense. Even if giants appear in the Mesoamerican creation story, 
their portrayal is very different from, from what we see in this uh, anonymous uh, source <laughs> that Hancock refers to here. Also, while there's some connection to a great flood within Mesoamerican religion, it's just one of many different ways the world gets destroyed. We have the deluge, but in another uh, world, it was destroyed by dogs, for example. Now we need to evaluate myth critically. Some might have good information, sure. Lipo, Hans and uh, Hua recreation of how the Maui statue could have been moved is based on legends but viewed from a critical lens. So archaeologists do use legends but we need to look at them more objective. And something we should address before we move on to our last stop for this episode. I want to again bring up this idea of uh, Kukulkan and Quetzalcoatl. At least Hancock in the this series doesn't claim that Quetzalcoatl was a white man any longer at least. But he still has this idea that this god came from the east. Now within Mesoamerican mythology, Quetzalcoatl has two sides basically. One part creator slash destroyer of the universe and one part is a cultural hero. Now what Graham Hancock seems to do is to confuse the hero part of the story with the god part of the story. Quetzalcoatl as a culture hero is a bit confusing since it talks about a ruler, sometimes referred to as one reed or Tolptsin, Quetzalcoatl. The demise of one read varies depending on the version and when it was told. In some versions, the end of Quetzalcoatl or one read is that he sailed east or west, burned himself up, became the morning star, moved to Tlipapan, became sick and just died, uh, or split the ocean, just like Moses did. Again, we have captured Hancock in a sort of uh, orchard filled with cherry trees. And the idea that Quetzalcoatl was white is an uh, invention from Geronimo de Mendieta, a Franciscan missionary and chronicle who lived between 1522 and 1604. In his work Historia Esclasistica, Indiana, Volume 2, Chapter 10, we learn about some of the histories of Quetzalcoatl. The Mendieta probably based this on a now lost writing of Andres de Olmos, another priest operating a bit earlier than the Mendieta. But in this chapter we learn that Quetzalcoatl, or Kulkulkan, was described as followed. He was a white man, tall in body, broad forehead, large eyes, long black hair, and large round beard. Now let's head over east from Mesoamerica to the Mediterranean Sea. And just south of Sicily we have three islands, Gozo, Comino and Malta. This little island nation is home to some of the oldest known megalithic structures. And we covered these buildings recently in an episode called Aliens and Ancient Engineers. And what's interesting is that Hancock's claims doesn't differ too much from the old ancient alien episode. We still have this idea of an outside force uh, coming to the islands and helping these poor farmers who've never built anything bigger than a shack. 
And the funny thing is the ancient alien proponents agree with the mainstream interpretations of the date of the sites, while Hancock does not, as we will learn here. But Hancock, he disagrees with the conventional dates, putting the site to 3600 BCE and 3200 BCE. He admits that there are datable artifacts and things from the sites, but he just hand waves them away, saying they, of course, these parts were built later, but the rest of them is built a lot, lot earlier, of course. And the director of the show does a great job giving the impression that these sites have been barely investigated. But there's actually been ample dating on these sites. There are both uh, optically stimulated luminescence testings. So we test quartz, for example, to see when it was subjected to sunlight. And when we perform this test, the dating lands about 3600 BCE to 3080 BCE. Add to this uh, the accelerator mass spectrometry, a form of carbon dating that gives have given us dates in the past between 3600 BCE and 3200 BCE. But the date Hancock want is around 10,000 BCE. So he have set out to find someone who agrees on with him on this date. And Hancock does a little sneaky thing here again, claiming that we will use archaeoastronomy, which is a real thing, or, well, Graham calls it the knowledge of the ancient. Now, in reality, he is not really using archaeoastronomy in that sense here. If he did, it wouldn't really fit with his theory. Instead, they interview a Dutch juridical translator by the name of Lenje Redjik. And Redjik believes that the temples on Malta align with the brightest star Sirius. And to get this theory toward the construction type of the temples, according to Regic and Hancock, we need to push the date back of the building of the temples to 9000 BCE. The reason why this like this date is unclear because some temples would align more if we placed it in 5350 BCE or 4250 BCE. But we could also use other signs on the stars, for example, oriented temples towards Centuri, the equinoxes, or the solstices. Why these orientations are not viable is never explained or even presented within the show. They also leave out uh, that the Southern Cross lines up a lot better with all the temples on Malta, in contradiction to the serious alignment that would only work with some of the temples. And even then, if the date would moved back. The Southern Cross or the Crocs would make more sense for the Maltese sailors since they used this to navigate to and from Sicily. And using the Crocs as alignment also fits with the time frame from when we know that the temples were built within our dating. However, Hancock has an ace in the arm. There's evidence of earlier human habitation than scholars have thought, or well, human-like habitation. Now, in the cave of Gar Dalam, two teeth were found in 1917 by Mr. G. Despot and identified as Neanderthal. And this was based on the teeth perceived pulp chambers or turodontism, 
But this identification was never replicated, and it seems to have been wrong from the start. It doesn't mean that it's impossible that Neanderthal lived on Malta. They were across Europe, of course, they could have come to Malta, but, but we don't have any evidence for it. Plausible? Yes. Proven? No. Not yet, at least. Maybe one day in the future, but... Of course, we need some evidence first. These teeth were not the case. And I will gloss over the cart rots here that he brings up in the episode because I went into them in greater detail in the earlier episode of Malta. But as the research stands right now, it's most likely actual marks from carts hollowed out more by erosion over time. And to close this segment out, Hanka comes up with a quite, uh, quite interesting remark in the show to get a connection between Malta, ancient Egypt, and Osiris. He claims that the boats of Malta have the Ion Horus painted on them. Some looks like it on the modern vessels, but the tradition does not originate from Egypt. It actually originates from Greek and Rome, and these eyes were to ward off envy and harm concepts that were well known in Greek and Roman literature. So Hancock's Osiris connection topples over like a cow in the night. Now to close out the show, I want to introduce our next and last guest. So I want to welcome to the show Kaylee from the YouTube channel History with Kaylee. Would you maybe want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself if they're not familiar with you already sure yeah my name is kaylee i'm from the netherlands uh i'm 31 i'm officially a high school dropout but i've been passionate about history since i was young especially the stone age um so when i got about 10 years ago i had a surgery that made me unable to work so i started researching things in my free time because i had a lot of that and eventually I decided to create videos on the research that I was doing. So that led to me creating my YouTube channel and I started making videos on structures from the Stone Age. And eventually it led to me doing a whole lot of other things. And earlier this, uh, or like last year, I started doing anthropology on my channel and that's currently my focus. But I still love okay. the Stone Age structures and the mystery surrounding them. So I decided to review the Ancient Apocalypse series from Graham Hancock on Netflix. And I'm making mm. a review for every episode. I'm making one video. And eventually I will have covered everything and looked at the facts and the fiction. Were you familiar with Hancock before you started uh, the um, reviewing project or was he new to you as uh, a history learner? Uh, he was definitely not new to me. I've been uh, following his work for about a decade now. And yeah, of course, in the beginning, I was quite intrigued and I thought that maybe he's onto something. But the more I looked into things myself and researched them for myself, I learned that a lot of things that he's saying is very embellished. And not necessarily based on factual evidence. So, yeah, um, I mean, I've seen his podcasts on the Joe Rogan experience. I, I'm very familiar with him. It's just that for the videos on Ancient Apocalypse, I only look at what he says in the show. And I don't focus hey. on anything 
outside of the show. Because for the people that aren't familiar with him, they're only going to see the show at first. And based off of that, yeah. they're going to eventually create their opinion. And I didn't want to, um, yeah, how do I say that? I didn't want to make sure that people that weren't familiar with him heard things that they didn't see in the show. Uh, understandable approach and a bit different than maybe some others have had to Joe. What did you feel when you saw the episode? Did you feel that it's more, I'm not sure if you're familiar with ancient aliens and those type of documentary. How do you feel it compares to these more extreme um, pseudo claims compared yeah. to Hancock? Is Hancock more easily to get sucked in by or would people react differently? Do you? I, I think it's a bit of a mix. On one hand, he is equally over-exaggerating, in my opinion. <laughs> but uh, on the <laughs> other hand, he's wording it in a way that makes it sound plausible. And I think that's a bit of the catch of this show. It sounds plausible enough for people who aren't aware of the Stone Age history. For them, it may sound like, oh, this could actually be a thing, or this could have happened like exactly like he says it happened. But when you actually research it, you find the flaws and you find the holes. You can get sucked into it very easily. <laughs> Sorry, my cats are doing their thing. But I mean, yeah, you can get sucked into it very easily, especially if you're unaware of it, because the, the show, it, it looks good. Um, he tells the, his stories in a way that it's intriguing. He's a very charismatic guy. That doesn't yeah. mean that he's right, though. So <laughs> you can get sucked into it, but I hope that most people that have watched it will also do their own research to form their own opinion and not just take his opinion as fact. Did you have any issues watching the episodes? I know many in the archaeology field have been wondering holes in their living rooms, shouting at their televisions. Did you feel yeah. it was a struggle to watch or? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, um, episode one, first two minutes, I paused, walked away from my laptop and told myself, am I really going to do this? Like, I don't want to attack a person. I only want to attack their work or like not even attack. It's a critique. And I don't want to attack anyone or make it sound like I'm attacking anyone. It's just that I very much do not agree with him on not yeah. just one or two things, but it's like when I make my scripts, I pause nearly every 30 seconds to write something down. Doesn't mean that it'll be in the end script that I create. It just means that that's how long it takes for me to watch an episode. So an episode of like 25 yeah. minutes takes me about an hour and a half at least to get through. Because I yeah. hear something and then I'm like, mm, is that really the case? And then I have to research it, look it up, get all the facts straight, then write something down, then go back. And then within 10 seconds, I'm like, really? Again? Pause. <laughs> and, you know, did you keep... Yeah, it's, it's a thing. Um, I don't recommend doing it. Let's keep it at that. Like, I started this and, <laughs> yeah, from the moment I started it i actually regretted doing it because it's so much work like i normally yeah. run my videos from a few scientific papers that are available on like a species 
or a structure. And that's super easy for me because I have my research all cut out. I know what to do or know what to write. <laughs> and I can write a script in like, what, eight hours? And, and, and yeah. be completely done. With this, it's like an hour and a half to watch the show, including some research. Then I have to go back, research deeper, and then try and create a script that's sort of easy to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that feeling you're describing my process, basically. Yeah, <laughs> too. So I'm familiar with that one. It takes some time to put everything together. I've put some of the articles that have come out by archaeologists and other historians in the field, but I rarely look at them when I'm writing my scripts or watching the show because mm. I don't want their opinion to influence mine. Yeah. Because I, I have a strong opinion of my own, but I don't want to take the words of someone else accidentally or things like that. Yeah, yeah. this can be a healthy approach to it. But let's talk a little bit about what he says, not necessarily at Verdum, but um, what did you find most interesting in the few episodes you have seen so far? It covers a couple of sides. Was there anything you felt, wow, this was exciting, even if it was maybe portrayed a bit um, faulty? <laughs> For me, the one of the very few things that I very much enjoyed of the show was the um, renders, like I think it's like 3D renders, of what some of the sites could have looked like in their prime. Mm. Those shots, I absolutely love. I think the creative team behind it did a fantastic job on them. It looks amazing. It helps me to try and figure out in my mind what things could have looked like in the past. It's something that I've tried to do myself for a long time. Yeah. Seeing them in a render on the screen, yeah, that to me that's exciting because oh that it could have looked like that. On the other hand, with the Bimini Road uh, episode 4 episode, I'm very un unconvinced. No. But with uh, Gigantia in Malta, I think that looked fantastic. Okay. I absolutely think it looked fantastic. And the uh, pyramid in the second episode, um, that looked good too, the uh, render of that. That looked amazing. And I was yeah. like, ooh, could have looked like that for sure. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I must say that they actually did bring in some good 3D modelers on the show. And that helps a lot. You yeah, know, to get people picturing how it was back then, even if it's not an exact uh, carbon copy okay. of the site, it still, you know, gives some imagination. And those type of projects has been part of archaeology for a quite long time. In reality, it's just that we don't really utilize them as much as we could do, which is something we can apply in our own, um, you know, outreach to the public in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, but um, from the episode you have seen, what's did you feel was the worst representation of a site or a concept? The worst representation, um, I'm afraid I also have to go back to Malta. Because, yes, um, Malta is very well known by archaeologists. It's extremely well excavated, actually. They research it thoroughly. That The archaeologists hmm. on Malta and that have worked on Malta in the past have done tremendous work. And... He made it look like they barely did anything and they got all their facts wrong. 
and they just don't want to admit that there was this ancient civilization that took over everything and just built everything and then disappeared. Like, no, no. It's extremely well known that on Malta, the temples were created by the Neolithic temple builders and they did an amazing job. And you can even see on other structures on the islands of Malta and Gozo that it wasn't a, a thing that they just did. It was a gradual thing. There are things older than the massive temples, like some of the dolmens and other sites on the islands that predate uh, Gigantia and uh, Hajar-in and Menaidra that he didn't look at and didn't show in the Netflix series because that would ruin <laughs> his story. So I think mm. the worst representation that he gave was the Malta episode so far. I mean, Bimini, it's just... Yeah. But, I mean, everyone knows Bimini is just... <laughs> it's a fun story, but it's not true. But on Malta, he very much badly represented the work done there. Yeah, and Malta... But you've been on Malta, I think, even... Yep, last year, yeah. for 10 days, I've seen all the temples, most of the dolmens, most of the card ruts. I've been inside the Halsaflini Hypogeum. So I've seen things myself with my own eyes. I've been there. I've not touched anything because that's something I don't do. <laughs> it's all about preservation of these sites. Is there something you wished that Netflix aired instead of this type of type of documentary? If you were the producer, what would you yes. make instead for a documentary show? Honestly, I would have contacted Dr. Lee Berger and asked him to film the excavations in the Rising Star Cave system and all the amazing things on Homona Lady that they found there and show that process. Show how an actual excavation season goes. Not just one day of an excavation where they might not find anything, but mm. film an entire excavation season and show that to the public. Like, of course, take out the fun stuff and leave out the boring stuff. That's fine. But show people what a real excavation is like yeah on the field with the people with the experts show how they speculate about things as they are finding it before they research because of course they speculate a little bit here and there and that's fun to see this might be from this or this might uh, push to that narrative or just show the real stuff show real excavations show real historians and archaeologists and paleoanthropologists while they are working and not just sitting in front of a camera because that's what hey. we currently do when we show them mostly i mean when um home on a lady was first discovered they did film with national geographic and they showed excavations the reason my video on home on a lady blew up was because of that amount of interest because it was filmed in the past. So people remember yeah. seeing it and wanting to know more, wanting to learn about new information that has possibly come out since. I think we should look more about on the real stuff and not just the ancient aliens, ancient advanced civilization narrative that honestly is based on nothing. Yeah, old esoteric text for the most part. There's some fantasy. 
stuff. Well, I like the esoteric but... part of it. Like I've I've done this Egypt tour with an uh, on an esoteric tour, so I, I yeah. understand that way of looking at it. But even then, uh, the tour focused on the real history and gave esoteric information on the side. It wasn't yeah. about that the esoteric thought of it and thought behind some of the things was like the only way to look at it. We know the excavations yeah. and then we see these symbols and this is created in a, in a certain way and that might have this or that meaning. Whether you believe that meaning is up to you. That's how that tour went. So the esoteric okay. part of it, I don't mind. It's just that we need to focus on the real history and real archaeology before we think about an ancient advanced culture that lived on the planet, came from Atlantis, and then went with their boats and everywhere. And then everywhere they went, only one arrived. And sometimes even, like, what, 9,000 years after Atlantis disappeared? Like, what? what is your story? Like, yeah. giants and and and, and, and all this. It's, it's, no. Please, no. Seems to be a difference between using <laughs> esotericism to add to existing knowledge, but what yeah. Graham Hancock yeah. and the Van Dani can do is to use theosophy, anthroposophy, esotericism as the lens who we look through the myth on. So if people want to hear more from you or view your show, where should they go and find you? If they want to watch me on YouTube with my thorough videos, they go to History with Kaylee on youtube very easy to find usually when you say <laughs> history with and just a k you can find me because most people can't write my name um on twitter i'm kaylee history and on instagram history with kaylee as well i also have a facebook page but i rarely use it so don't don't bother don't don't even bother <laughs> all right so look her up on twitter youtube and instagram yeah thank you for your time kaylee and uh, yep. see you some other time yeah my pleasure Thanks again, Kaylee. Links to her projects can be found in the show notes. But for now, we will close the books for this time. But make sure to return next time. The exploration will take us to Gubbley Tepe, Poverty Point, Serpent Mound, and back to Daring Cuyo. We will also be guested by Dr. Kinkella from the Pseudo-Archology podcast and maybe some more interesting people. So make sure to tune back in next time. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the Trench. I also recommend you to visit diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast, and you can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. There you will also find all the sources and resources that I use to produce this podcast. And you often find further reading suggestions over there. Sandra Martelor created the intro music. Our outro music is from the band called Trollsgroove, who will sing their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Men jag skyddar mig för jag har folie här. Och så säger ni så det är en galen fantasi. Att jag är en man med
I need to click on my litter box because it's going to make noise and that's not going to be fun. Loud. Cats. Cats. He's always a naughty boy. He's so young and he doesn't understand life, but he's always so naughty when I film anything. Why? Why are you naughty? Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there.